0: Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essay speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. We would also like to inform you of an upcoming Sexaholics Anonymous internet marathon. Around the World in 24 Hours will take place starting at noon, Universal Time, on November 29th, and will end properly at noon Universal Time on November the 30th. It's free to register online at www.sim.sexaholicsanonymous.eu. Thank you very much, and without further ado, welcome to The Daily Reprieve. Well, there's, there's the man himself. Come on in, Brant. Uh, well I'm going to take this time to thank you for being involved in this event I know there were other people that helped you but I really appreciate your commitment to the fellowship in Franklin and the fellowship in Middle Tennessee and, and for putting this together we were just talking about um, it's a long day it's a hard day it's emotional but yet at the same time there's something that I believe, comes out of these marathon kind of workshop days that that goes beyond uh, just the regular meetings. And uh, people get stuff out. My experience is I get stuff out of them that I don't really realize until later. Oh, Dave said, Ryan said, you know, in the laughter from the room where Marty was speaking, um, that was un, un, inappropriate and uncalled for. <laughs> but, Not if you were in there. Well, you, okay. You know, what a wonderful thing. What a wonderful thing for a bunch of sexaholics sit around on a Saturday afternoon and just haw haw laugh. That's great. And there's something about it, and, and I'm, glad, I'm grateful to be a part of it. And so to you and everyone else involved, thank you. Um, and what I'm doing is stalling. Um, because I put a lot of preparation. As we talked about this, and I'm like, "Yeah, I'll do two. I don't care. I'm, I'm a you know, one's good, two's better, ten's even better." But as much preparation as I put into my first talk, I didn't do much at all for this one, and that was that was intentional. And you know, because I'm testing, I'm doing an experimental a beta beta test. Um, which which goes better, but what I know is I'm not up here for Brad's benefit. Well, I am here for Br- Brad's benefit, but I'm not. This is not me just telling my story. This is an opportunity for God to tell His story. I think that's what this is all about, and as maybe I can get that across as I go through some of this stuff, my experience with these steps. Uh, this morning, I shared about. You know, getting an idea of lust, what was lust like out there when I was doing it, and what it was like when I got into early recovery. And this afternoon, I suggested that to Brant, I said, what do we talk about progressive victory over lust continued? You know, because uh, this program is not just a short, one and done kind of deal. It's not, it's not. 12 steps, 12 weeks, thank you very much, I'm out of here, kind of a thing. So I'd like to just think about that some with y'all, give some opportunities for comments and feedback your experience, and then we'll just see where it goes. A couple of years ago, me and another guy got to go down to Memphis and share some of our story, and... uh, we 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 talked about it the topic of that thing was uh encouraged to continue and that's a line that comes out of one of our readings the solution and we 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 uh we discussed that 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 was kind of our theme for the day encouraged to continue and we talked about 10 11 and 12 some and One of the things I remember that guy saying, his name was Curtis, by the way, and he said one of the things about advanced recovery is sticking to the basics. So, you know, it's really important as I progress in my recovery to remember that, you know, I don't get degrees or I don't, you know, graduate or I don't get promotions in recovery. It's just stick to the basics, but continuing is a really important word for me, and I really believe that uh, this sentence in that, that writing the solution, encouraged to continue, that sentence is what I would call the essay turning point because I've seen a lot of people get to that sentence, and they stop. And then I've seen some move forward from there on into what I would call the next kind of step in recovery. So I just want to read a little bit of it and kind of give you all that perspective. Uh, We saw that our problem was threefold, physical, emotional, spiritual. Healing had to come about in all three. The crucial change in attitude began when we admitted we were powerless, that our habit had us whipped. We came to meetings and withdrew from our habit. For some, this meant no sex with themselves or others including not getting into relationships. For others, it also meant drying out and not having sex with the spouse for a time to recover from lust. We, we discovered we could stop, that not feeding the hunger didn't kill us, that sex was indeed optional. There was hope for freedom. We began to feel alive. That is a good deal. You know, I discovered I could stop. I don't have to go to the prostitute every other week. Or every other day or every other hour. I don't have to get online and get in those chat rooms. and Whatever my forms of acting out, I discover I can stop. That's a good thing to discover. Uh, Not feeding the hunger didn't kill me. Neat. Cool. Um, Sex is optional. That's a pretty important thing for a sexaholic to learn. Cool deal. I don't have to do it. It won't kill me. There's hope for freedom. I begin to feel alive. Thank you very much, S.A. We'll see you later. You know? And I've seen that. You know? And sometimes I would like to be that guy. And just say, thanks a lot. I'm feeling better. I'm I'm back in the big bed. Uh, Me and the probation officer have got everything worked out. I'm I'm working 40 hours a week. And life is good. And then this next sentence... It says, encouraged to continue. We turned more and more away from our isolating obsession with sex and self and turned to God and others. All this was scary. We couldn't see the path ahead, except that others had gone that way before. Each new step of surrender felt it would be off the edge into oblivion, but we took it. And instead of killing us, surrender was killing the obsession we stepped into the light, into a whole new way of life. So we, I go from feeling alive and hope for freedom to all oh, this was scary. You know, off the edge, into oblivion. I don't know what he's thinking about when he puts that in the solution. You know, that's part of the solution. And that's the challenge. You know, that's the turning point. That's the, to me, the question... It, Am I going to make that decision to do that or not? You know, am I going to continue in this program or am I just going to kind of slide on out the door or just maintain my happiness in being a member of of the fellowship and what is it, socialized spirituality and all of that stuff? So the challenge is continuing. Continuing and being encouraged to continue. And I think we encourage each other to do that. Sponsors do that. Meetings help us do that. And as we hold each other uh, together, the fellowship gave us monitoring and support. So we we can move on, but that's the, that's the challenge, is how to do it and what it looks like. Um, a couple of things that I wanted to share in this meeting was um what my step work has looked like, you know and i want to I thought I would start with six and seven, I know it says ten eleven, and twelve, but I want to start with six and seven and 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 just kind of move through that and give y'all a picture of what it was like for me, and what does that have to do with progressive victory over lust? You know we get to a point where uh Not lusting isn't the focus of coming into the rooms. Um, I've got a good good friend in AA, and he talks about how when he got in AA, he thought it was going to be about not drinking. And he said, he gives the example of, well, you know, Sunday afternoon, the Titans are playing, and his buddies are going down to the game and he gets invited to go, and his answer is, well, no, I'm going to have to stay home and not drink. And I'm going to have to focus on not drinking. And, and that's the way I kind of am, can be, and how I was, and is, is I was focused on not acting out. Not lusting, not feeding the lust, you know, not feeding the hunger. And that was an important thing that I had to learn in SA recovery has to have to learn to do that, but it comes a point where we go beyond that just a little bit. I think you know, this program is about um, recovery from a spiritual illness, uh, sexaholism. Um, as the alcoholics say, alcoholism does not come in bottles, it comes in people. Sexaholism does not come in whatever form of acting out I connect to. It comes in me. It's inside of me. And it has to do with all of those things we talked about this morning. Uh, uh, I talked about uh, thoughts, attitudes, beliefs, uh, decisions, personality, all of that stuff, the core of who I am. That's where my sexaholism is. That's the That's the crux of the problem. It's not... Pornography. It's not porn shops. It's not uh, the person down the street that gets my attention. It's not the old girlfriend from high school. That's not my sexaholism. That's just where I attach it to. That makes any sense at all. And my pro, uh, excuse me, my sponsor suggested to me that a lot of recovery, what it turns out to be, is getting unthirsty getting un, uh, unhooked to that need, that desire for that lust. He talks about getting unthirsty. That recovery is about being unthirsty. It's not, not being thirsty, not, not, not drinking, but learning to move forward in my life. He says in this, in this way he would say, I don't focus on the darkness, I just invite the light. And that's what these steps are about, is learning to invite the light, to live in, in, in the joy of living, as the 12 and 12 says. And I, I heard another guy describe it this way. He says, lust is a, is a ball, and it's a certain size ball, and it's about that big, and it dominates me. But recovery starts however, what size ever it gets. But the bigger it gets, the more it becomes desirable in what I want to live my life, where I want to live my life, whereas this lust thing gets just doesn't seem to carry as much weight as it used to. And so for me, continuing in this program and progressive victory over lust doesn't look so much like learning more tools to not lust. <laughs> You know, at some point, that toolbox gets to where it needs to be. Prayers, phone calls, uh, affirmations. I heard a guy talking about making an affirmation on his way into work every day. I thought, what a great idea! You know, not not lusting, but moving towards life, embracing life. That's what I'm here for. If I'm gonna just be honest, if all y'all had to offer was not lusting, I'm not in. I got no I mean I it's just not going to keep me. I could have hang in for a little while. But the day would come where I'm out. Unless you had something f- better for me to to live to. Harvey talks about um all these years he he, he uh he 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 loved and and cherished Eating apples. And he got in recovery, had to learn to enjoy oranges. He had to find something new to enjoy and, and take the place of this old fruit. And that's my experience. And the beauty of it is we have it. The beauty of it is in the 12-step programs, it does exist. There is a solution. And, and it's a wonderful solution. It's an ex- exceptional Unbelievable solution. And um, so that's my idea of what progressive victory over lust looks like today as much as anything else. Progressive victory over lust today looks like when somebody calls and asks me to do service work, I say yes unless I got a reason to say no. You know, um, I got a call, can you come to Franklin? Sure. I had nothing nothing else going on. Now, if this was my granddaughter's birthday, I wouldn't be here. But the Alabama LSU game is not enough reason for me not to be here, you know? And another thing about service work for me is I try not to be real uh, choosy about what I do when I'm asked to do it. If service work in SA is about convenience, or what I like, or what I don't like, it, it it's not about that. Uh, again, this guy that was my sponsor for a good while would say, if it's not inconvenient, it may not count. <laughs> he wasn't sure, but he said he'd say it may not count. So service work can be inconvenient on occasions, but at the same time, it's one of the things that keeps me involved in this program and it keeps me sober. The first time I was ever asked to tell my story in my home group by a guy in this room my wife was planning to go out of town that weekend before first time I'd ever she'd ever gone out of town in my sobriety my recovery so he asked me can you tell your story next week I'm like well yeah but my wife's going out of town <laughs> you know it's like so part of it was it was just a coincidence as far as the timing of that deal. But saying yes to telling my story was one, one more kind of hedge I was able to put up uh, to not get any ideas of, of going crazy while she's gone. You know, for a married guy and, or a married person and the spouse is out of town, whew, you know, that's like the circus. You know, that's like Cirque circ, circ du Soleil. You know, we're, let's have some fun. It's just it's just a, a trigger, almost built in. But having that service work commitment was one of the things that helped me to to not to go act out. And those service commitments come, um, I believe, the way they're supposed to. Uh, I'm a big believer in service work, and, and it was it's, it was I was encouraged to do service work almost from the day I started. That sponsor. Um, He also gave me some real simple things to do about service work. The first thing he told me to do, he says, when you go to a meeting, park. He said, don't take the best parking place. Leave the best parking place for somebody else. Park out there away from the building and walk in. Let somebody else have the parking spot. When you go to the mall or the grocery store, do the same thing. You know? And that was his way of teaching me to put other people ahead of myself. He asked, he told me, he said, "Get a newcomer. If there's a new guy in the meeting, and a new guy is anybody that's been there less than you. You know, if you've been there a week and they've been there one day, they're a new guy. Get that new guy's number and call them. And I know there's some people that don't believe in calling the person that you know that needs help, but." It's, it was good for me get the new guy's number and call him. and, and he'd, I'd be like well, what am I supposed to say doesn't matter just say hello just tell him your sponsor told, him to, told you you had to do it that's a good enough reason and I still got some names in my phone in my phone you know Jim the new guy and you know there were some calls that I made early on especially that helped me I don't know where those guys are doesn't matter but it helped me, and and so these are the kinds of things that that give me this attitude of of uh, you know giving of myself. Then uh, that's part of what what learning to to work this program has been about for me, um, and I'm grateful for that sponsor that that fed that into me immediately. You know, some people say this is a selfish program, and there is a very important piece of it about learning self-care. And I have to learn about self-care, but I also have to learn about abandoning myself to help and serve others. Uh, The big book uses the term altruism. It's an altruistic movement and altruism to me is doing something of service with no expectations of anything in return. It's not doing it so I'll get something back. It's doing it with no expectations of anything in return. And what happens, what, what we all know, when I do that or when, when a person does that, they get something in return. They get a feel, I get a feeling of wholeness. I get a feeling of purpose. I get a feeling of usefulness that maybe 40 years of garden variety sexaholism, of doing all kinds of craziness and hurting a lot of people along the way can be restored and redeemed and put to use and so that's my experience with service work that's my experience with this idea of altruism and discovering myself while i'm doing this work um just a little bit about steps um i had a i had a great uh sponsor who took me through the steps i did a fifth step with him one afternoon and you know, that fifth step where I admitted some of the exact nature of my wrongs uh, was a challenge, but it was useful, it was, it was worthwhile and good. I remember I left his house and I took a couple of turns and I got out on the main road and I'm like, dang, I forgot to tell him about whatever it is I forgot to tell him about. So I called him up, excuse me, the slot's spitting everywhere. I called him up and I said... I mean, I I call him up, and he answers. He says, what took you so long? (laughs) He knew there was going to be stuff I'd left out. And and so I said, well, I did this and this. Oh, yeah, okay, all right, we got that and checked in. And uh, one of the things that was important for me about the exact nature of my wrongs is that I learned that the exact nature of my wrongs had a lot to do with ideas and attitudes. And not so much things that I did. Let me give you an example. I stole from my father's. This, okay, this is uh, this is being recorded. I stole from my father's change drawer when I was a teenager. He would come home in the after in after work and throw all his change in this little bucket, and I would pilfer it. <laughs> And go buy a pot with that. That was, you know, back in the days you could buy a nickel bag was five dollars. And you had five dollars out of his change drawer, I could get that, go buy some pot. And that's what I would do. And later on I was doing some things where I was I had kind of upgraded my my stealing, my theft behaviors, and, and continued to upgrade as life went on. And so I've got this list of all these things that I did. And I gotta tell my sponsor about that stuff. I gotta admit that. And then you hear this phrase, well we look for patterns. Look for patterns in our behavior. Well the pattern was Brad is a thief. Okay? Brad steals. And even then, there's more to it because at one there that next level of, of understanding and what I got to with the exact nature of my wrong there was I had this old idea, this attitude, that I deserve something for nothing. That's the that's the exact nature of my wrong, is I deserve something for nothing. As long as I've got that idea, I'm gonna steal. You know. So what? Where I had to go to? I think the book calls it the root. I had to go to the root of what was driving that, that behavior. And the exact nature of my wrong was that I believed I deserved something for nothing. And as long as I had that belief, I would be a thief, and I would steal, and I would take things. Y'all, while you were talking, I went out to, to, took a break, and I walked by the literature table there. All those books, (laughs) Nobody attending them. And I had that thought. Man, I could grab one of those. Nobody would ever know. And fortunately, I didn't have to act on that crazy thought. But it's still there. I'm still that guy. But today, I don't think that thought. I mean, I don't act on that thought. And I've been working on it. So let me tell you how that looks. One of my big problems at is, is with work. I told him earlier, I, I don't think I've ever been accused of being a workaholic. And uh, workaholism is not going to be one of my issues. I think I might be workorexic. <laughs> but anyway, I have this feeling, this, 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 this idea about work is, is that if you're going to be productive at work, you have to be angry. And I learned that as a kid on Saturday mornings. And me and my dad would do antique work. And he'd he'd go out and he'd buy these antiques and bring them back to the house. And we'd strip them down and refinish them and build them back. And he was mad the whole time. He, you know, to be productive, you have to be angry. And that's just an old idea that I had. And and so at fifty years old, at, at my place of employment, I was known as a butthead, you know, a jerk. Nobody wanted to be around Brad. You, you're you're no fun to be around. This lady told me, this manager. She said, you people go away when they see you coming." So I come into this program with that. That's my. That's the way I do work. And. And I knew something had to change. And, and I knew I couldn't make myself change. So I get into the sixth and seventh steps where I'm entirely ready to have God remove my character, my defects of character and I humbly ask him to remove my shortcomings. And uh, Vicki, my wife, talks about humility. She stole it from somebody else. I'll steal it from her. Humility is is saying, "Okay, I want things to change. I want to ask for a change. And I don't know what's on the other side of the change. I there, there may even be some pain involved. But I'm willing to let it, I'm willing to humbly ask knowing that there may be some pain that I'm going to have to go through to get to where where I think God wants me to be. So I'm humbly asking, God, what's what what is supposed to what is my work life supposed to look like? What's it? What's supposed to be different? And the the idea came. Um, why don't you Why don't you try just doing an honest day's work for an honest day's pay? And I'm like, well, I could probably try that. I could do that. I may, I can try it. Can't hurt to try. Most kids learn that in kindergarten. But I, didn't, I, was, I was 10 times at kindergarten age when the idea of honest days work for an honest day's pay kind of came through my brain. So I try it. I go in and I work and I do my best to do an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, and at the end of the day, I go home. And that starts to give me some, some freedom, some, some happiness, some, something is, I'm feeling useful. And I ask God in this pro- progress, this continuing pro- procession of recovery, of the six and seven steps, is there anything more? Because I've learned that in recovery, I have to be willing to let go of my old ideas. And old ideas are anything that, le- that, 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 that I've had more than 24 hours. So the old idea that honest days work for an honest day's pay Is good enough? Well, maybe there's something else. God, do you have anything more in mind? Is there anything underneath that that I can go to? And the thought came to my mind one morning, walking in, why don't you try to enjoy, have fun at work today? Why don't you try to have a good time working? Like, wait a minute, God. Whoa, hey, you know, that's way over the top, you know? But I'm thinking, okay, I'll give it a shot. And uh, I go in and I try to have a good time at work. And by golly, I had a good time at work. And I learned that I don't have to be angry to work to be productive. I can enjoy being productive. I can enjoy my work. Now this may sound like, I don't know what y'all are thinking, but this is big stuff for me. This This is recovery. This is progressive victory over lust. Because most of my days I'd go into work, I'd be mad all day. I'd get off at 5 o'clock, i have my little pot pipe in the car. As soon as I get out of the parking lot, I'm out of sight at work. I'm hitting that pipe, stopping at the closest store to get some beer, and I'm thinking about if, 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 if my wife is not at home, I'm going to be doing something. And um, so for me to go to work and enjoy the day... Big deal. Big, big deal. And then I'm like, well, okay, God. Okay, dude. You know, we're like having some fun here now. I'm like, God, is there anything more? Is there a new idea? And it was like, yeah, why don't you go to work and be of service and, and understand that when you're at work, you're doing something to help other people. And there's this woman named Grace. And she just is the one I picture, and I realize now when I go in and I do a really good job, it helps her because it's putting food on her table and feeding her family. It's not just putting food on my table; it's putting food on her table and everybody else at the at where I work. And it's helping customers, and it's it's like we're doing something useful. We're helping people, and it's like wow, all of this just because I was willing. To, to be ready, to see if there's something more in my life. That's six and seven for me. That's six and seven. The last thing that happened with work was uh, I read this piece in the big book that says where if we have a resentment, we treat somebody like uh, we're cheerfully, we would cheerfully treat a sick friend. Y'all remember that part? And if I thought about and I began to think about going to the hospital to visit a sick friend, what we do? What do we do when we do, what do you do when you go to the hospital to see a sick friend? You take balloons, you bring them a card, you sneak in some chocolate cake. You go in and you try to be friendly and listen and empathize, and be cheerful. And I'm reading that and I'm going, "Oh my god, I've got to go in to work." And treat my boss and my coworkers like they were sick, and, and cheerfully treat them like I, I would treat a sick friend. So I'm going into work nowadays cheerful. How can I be treat this person cheerful, cheerfully? How can I be cheerful with the boss and the, my coworker who's really getting on my nerves a lot lately? What can I do to be cheerful here? And so far what that's gotten me is a whole bunch of extra work. You know? I've actually volunteered for additional tasks and responsibilities at work. But it's great. I'm cheerful. I'm happy. I'm being cheerful. And, and work is a whole lot better than it used to be. I'm working more and I'm doing more. And I'm not saying I'm 100%. But by golly, this whole thing of God removing this ca- defective character... And and giving me something new to live by is just amazing, in my opinion. It's just been an amazing experience. The other thing, my other experience with six and seven, is that God will take a character defect and turn it into an asset. I believe. I've seen that happen in my life, or that's the way I call it, like describe it. The first time I ever went out of town to share my story what, or anything like that, was going down to Atlanta to the convention down there one, one year. And I volunteered to, to be on a panel and share for 10 minutes. So I got 10 minutes to share on a panel with uh, Art B and another guy from down. Art is like the Harvey of Atlanta, okay? So I've got to look good, Right. I gotta, you know, I gotta make it this thing, and so my pride is what got me started in that. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll share. I I'll volunteer to share. It's all about my pride and my reputation and looking good and all that. So I get my books out, and I'm—I mean, literally, you would have thought I was teaching a, a semester class or something because I had—I had, I had sh- everywhere, and it was like notes and you know for this 10 minute presentation and it was all about pride and looking good and reputation because that's the most important thing in the world to me is looking good and the morning we were supposed to do I was supposed to do the deal I had no idea what I was going to say or what I was going to do it was awful and I woke up I went outside in the dark and I prayed God what would I do and it was like don't worry I got this and I'm like, but you don't understand. I'm my my reputation's at stake here. Don't worry, I got this. And God took pride and turned it into use to to, to service to, to to usefulness. You know, what got me started was pride, and what He turned it into was usefulness. And I shared. A, I don't even know what I said. I said something, but I got to hear Art and Jim. They did this amazing presentations. And I got to be a part of that and sit there and be a part of that, be, be of service. So I really, I really believe God will take these character defects if I just give them over, however it looks, whatever it looks like, just give them over, and he turns them into something, something useful. My sponsor says, um, there's nothing so terrible that can happen in my life. God can't turn it into something absolutely beautiful. And I believe that, you know. My junk, God's turned it into good stuff. So I do six and seven, and then it's like, okay, now there's time for some action, which is eight and nine. And I wish I could talk more about the eight and nine steps. I want to, But I want to tell a couple of stories about eight and nine. Um, I had my list. I knew exactly how many people were on my list. And I... I, didn't, I was really reluctant to get started, so me and, me and my sponsor are sitting in, at the Mexican restaurant, and he goes, okay, who's first on your list? Your men's list. I'm like, my uncle. And he says, all right, let's call him. I said, well, I've only got three phone numbers for him. You <laughs> already I had the numbers, but I wanted to make the call. He said, we'll call I said, I hadn't called him yet. He said, well, we'll call him right now. And I believe the eighth and ninth steps are a lot about willingness, in my case, it was my sponsor's willingness, not mine. You know, he had all the willingness; I had none. But I called my uncle and I made an appointment to go see him. And I went and I made my amends. I had lied to him uh, when I was in college, and and he was he was uh, involved in the in the administration at that university. And he asked me, you know, I was I had to lie to him to save my my my. my uh, from getting kicked out of college. And uh, I said to him, I went to his house. He's 80-year-old guy now and one of the most amazing people I know and uh, for a lot of reasons. But I went to him I said, you know, I lied to you that day. He said, I know. He knew. And uh, he said, you were forgiven that day. I forgave you then. I knew. And, and this is something that had been eating my lunch, and I'd had him. He was like tops on my resentment list. He made the top ten anyway because I just thought he was a goody two-shoes, and he, he had no idea what real life was about, and blah, blah, blah. And he forgave me, and then he did something even more amazing is he gave me his, his spiritual take on things, his, his picture of life. He told me, he, he gave me his, his, his picture of what life was about in, in a spiritual way. And it was a Bible kind of Christian thing, but it was his take. And it was amazing. And I realized how much I had missed by not having that relationship with him. And I left there just grateful. I was just absolutely grateful. It was an amazing experience. I made amends to my wife. I said to her over dinner, it was, uh, uh, she had just taken a big bite of mashed potatoes, and I waited, (laughs) and I timed it out just right, (laughs) I'm like, honey, I've done some things that weren't so good, and you know, I haven't been the husband I need to be, and what can I do to make it right? He goes, are you trying to make amends to me? (laughs) She said, are you trying to make amends? I said, yeah, I guess I am. And she says, well, let me think about that. And I'm like, that is not the answer I want. (laughs) You're not telling me what I want to hear. She said, let me think about it. And that just, that put me in a real bad spot, because I was either going to be the guy, I said... I want to know what I can do to make it right, and I'm willing to listen to what you have to say. That's why I was told to make amends. And uh, that I was either going to be willing to listen, or I was going to go back to being the guy that never listened. I never listened to her. You know, what did she have to say? So I had to be willing to listen. and And I thought, okay, I'll give it a try, you know. And over time, over the next few days, the next few weeks, the next few months, the next few years, she has told me over and over what I can do to make things right in our relationship. It's amazing what happens if I just go into this relationship with that willingness and that attitude of, I want to hear what I can do to make things right. A couple of weeks ago... Uh, we were going to the movies and I sent her a text of the two that I had selected that I wanted to go to. I gave her an option. This one or this one? You know, and more bombs or more bombs? You know, car wrecks or bombs? What do you want? <laughs> you know, the typical guy movie and and I get home and, and, and she hadn't even seen the text yet. And I'm like, well, that pissed me off. And then the next thing, she's on on looking for the movies and all and and she picks one out and it's a chick flick okay it's like no bombs no car wrecks absolutely not one of my choices and I had an option right then you know what am I going to do be a jerk or, 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 or see what you know listen keep listening and I'm going okay we can go to that movie and it was mainly just to keep peace. Re- I really didn't want to go. I really didn't want to go, but I gave it a shot. And we got to that movie. It was awesome movie. It was excellent movie. So just being willing to listen, just being willing to go along, cooperate, not necessarily be a milk toast, not be a doormat, you know, not let people walk all over me, but just be willing to listen, willing to get along. Uh, that's something I've learned in the in the in the eighth and ninth step work. Uh, The last one I want to just say is God is the great amends maker and God knows more about making things right than I'll ever know and can do things that I've heard some of the old timers say that once we become willing to make these amends that God will rearrange the universe to make it happen. And just a quick story about that. When I was 10 years old, my, my granddad was killed in a car wreck by a drunk driver. And it changed everything for us. Um, he was kind of the glue in our family. And uh, when he was killed, my dad just went south. My dad's life went sideways. And uh, uh, I, I began to act out around that time. And just a lot of things happened. And uh, it turns out that that guy that drove that was driving that car that night got into AA. He got sober as a result of that car wreck, and um, at a point there came a point in time where he started talking about wanting to make amends to the families. And somebody in the AA meeting knew my family, and so the the, the man who killed my grandpa in the car wreck, went to my uncle that I would made amends to, and made amends to my, my uncle. Wanted to make amends to my grandmother and to my father, but neither one of them would listen. They would not make the connection. They just didn't want to have anything to do with the guy. But it turns out that my uncle and this man, the driver of the car, who had whose his life had turned around wound up going to places of worship to churches and talking together about forgiveness and telling the story of what it can happen when when forgiveness takes place there was another person in the car wreck another man that was killed his son preached this alcoholic man's funeral just about 2 years ago And so this amazing thing has happened. And what had happened to me about all of that is I never met the guy. His name was Chuck E. I never met Chuck, but I met some people that knew Chuck. And they were able to tell me about what kind of a guy he was. He was good AA. That's what they'd say. He was good AA. And they told me things that helped me understand that what happened that night with that car wreck, was was restored, redeemed, turned into good by a power that's greater than ourselves. And 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 the families have told this that have said that Chuck was able to reach people that they could have never reached. Lives have been turned around because of Chuck that and wouldn't have ever turned around any other way. So who am I to say things can't get worked out? Who am I to say this program doesn't have the, the ability, the power to change things in our lives? So um, I got to halfway through my amends list. I ain't not got to the 10th left. yet. I got to the halfway through my amends, and I went to the promises. Y'all know the promises on page 83 or whatever, that once we're halfway through, we're going to be amazed. And I went to that, and I was halfway through my list. I knew exactly where it was going to be. And I had checked had a little check. This is when I will be, all these promises will come true. And this is when I'll be amazed. And I sat down and I read the promises, and, you know, we're going to know a new freedom. We won't regret the past. We're going to comprehend serenity. None of that stuff was happening. I'm like, well, I've, got, so I've, been, I've been gypped here. I've done all these amends. And I'm not getting these promises, and I was very ticked off because I'd done a lot of effort, put a lot of effort into it. And then I got to the last one. It says, "We'll suddenly realize God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves." And I went, "Oh!" I thought about that one, and it turns out that's when all of them came true. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it because God is doing something for me that I can't do for myself. I will comprehend the word serenity and no peace because God is doing for me what I can't do for myself. It turns out that the last promise is what makes all the other ones come true. That's my opinion and my experience is that my effort although very important, is not the key ingredient. You know, my effort is what puts me in this position to experience what some people call the grace of God. You know, I don't know what that is. I don't know grace. I don't understand that. It's like surrender. I just don't get it. But I believe that that my effort is what puts me in that place and that, that God is doing for me what I can't do for myself. I made amends to my kids. I tried anyway. Uh, I made amends to my son's mother-in-law. <laughs> now that's a good one, <laughs> you know. I made amends to my mom and, and, you know, I made amends to my dad. I would love to tell you all all those stories because they're amazing, but I want to go on to uh, a couple of things about 10 and maybe a couple of things about 12 and and get y'all out of here. It's you know people that come to the last break uh, break out on a workshop. Yeah, until three fifteen. I got gotcha. you. Okay. I got gotcha. you. And I'll probably use it all. Good. <laughs> but I was going to say you people. I if you were thinking it was the top of the hour. Oh hell no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> people that come to the last breakout of the day are are are, are hardcore. You know. Um, it's amazing, but I'm, I'm grateful for you to be here. I'm thankful. Uh, step 10 for me is it's 10 and 11 together, really. One thing that's really been important for me on these two steps is permission to make a mistake. Permission to, to, to not be perfect all the time. You know, I grew up in a family where right... You know, we're outside the context of right and wrong, you know? That's what the White Book says. But for me as a kid, right was about, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, maybe about the size of the, the head of a pen. It was this little place where, you know, you. this is right. And wrong, anything outside of that little circle, wrong is like, you might as well just be in the the depths of the hell. You know, it's like anathema, aberration. uh, Any word that you can think of just to describe the most awful, terrible thing you could ever do, that was what was happening if you weren't right here. Right was here, and everything else was out there somewhere. Unacceptable. That was a hard way to live. And so, basically what I did was say, heck with it. I'm just going to go out there and enjoy the, the anathema while I can. <laughs> you know, I just enjoy it. Aberration. I'll just be one. And uh, I get in here, and y'all start telling me, continue to take personal inventory, and when we're wrong, promptly admit it. And that's the tenth step. And then pray... For conscious, you know, power to, uh, to knowledge of to do it and the power to carry it out in step eleven, and then go practice it. Practice these principles. Well, that's a whole lot easier place to be than where I was trying t- to come from in perfection. Y'all taught me it was okay to make a mistake. It wasn't okay to keep making the same mistake and not own it. You know. It, Part of what this program is about is standing up in front of my mistakes. yeah, I made some mistakes I hurt some people along the way but there's there's a way to make it right or at least attempt to and and quit making excuses and quit trying to live you know as as and I talk about being an exception just stand up in front of those mistakes I made one and Yet it's okay because you're human. My sponsor would say, um, you know, part of recovery is learning to make a a better, higher quality mistake. (laughs) You know, instead of being way down here, try to get the here. Uh, A guy asked me one Christmas, he said, how'd your Christmas go? How'd your holidays go? And I'm like, well, not all that good, you know. And he says, was anybody arrested? Well, no. Did anybody have to go to the emergency room? No. Well, then you had a pretty good holiday. Did anybody file for divorce? No. Well, then you had a pretty good holiday. You need to rethink that. You know, it's like, what's your expectations? (laughs) You know, uh, and and so the 10th step says, Brad, it's okay to make a mistake. Here's another part that that, that just bugged the crap out of me is... uh, It says, We've ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. That's a nice statement. If tempted, we recoil as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. Our new attitude toward liquor, or in our case, lust, has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That's the miracle of it. We're not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality. The challenging statement there is that we see that our new attitude toward liquor has come, has been given without any thought or effort on our part. And I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, I've been putting in a whole lot of effort. I've been to all these dang meetings. I've been listening to these people giving these crazy shares. You know, it's like, I don't, 90% of what they say is just insane. You know, they don't, you know, the, all the things that y'all aren't doing right. And I'm making all this effort. I'm calling this crazy sponsor and I made a lot of effort, and I put a lot of thought into it. And, and you're telling me that the, the attitude, the new attitude, is no, no thought or effort on my part? And then again, it was one of those moments, aha, uh-huh, God had the thought, God made the effort. Long before I ever even showed up. I mean, this program was here through no thought or effort on my part. All I'd had to do was act out for 40 years. That was the thought and the effort I put into it. And then I come in here and y'all tell me what to do and I get a new attitude. I get a new way of living. I experience neutrality. And I don't know if y'all have had that experience, but that's an amazing thing to have happen. To be going through the grocery store with my cart and I'm actually thinking about tomatoes and bread and potato chips and soft drinks, which and whatever else I'm there to buy and not doing this, I'm just neutral. I'm okay. I'm not lusting. I'm not going in there to see who's going to see me or who's who's going can, to I can see. That's an amazing experience. And that's because of, of the effort that, you know, I do work. I did work. My, my new sponsor said, he said, uh, You make the effort on the step work, God will take care of the new attitude. You know, that kind of a thing. And that's a really powerful experience for me, okay? That's wonderful stuff. It's good stuff. The 11th step, sought through prayer and meditation. I, I read that a lot. My first sponsor had me read it every morning out loud on Awakening and he'd have me read that whole thing and say, you need to read that out loud to yourself every day. And I did that as best I could a long time. As, and I'm not doing it now. I don't read it every day. But uh, the whole idea of, of prayer and meditation were require effort on my part. I had a problem with a lot of the prayers in SA, like praying for the person I lusted after. I would pray things like, God, would you make sure she wears that blue dress again tomorrow? You know, it's like, I, just, I don't think that's the idea. You know, it's like, it just wasn't working for me. And, and um, I went down to Murfreesboro and Bill Stewart was talking, Bill S. was talking about prayer. And he's a big prayer guy. And he talks about praying the 18-wheeler, the overcoming lust and temptation section in the book. And he has his sponsees write down every prayer in there, carry them in their pocket. I'm like, dang, he's serious about this prayer stuff. He means it. And I realized then I had to give it another shot. And I think there's something in the 12 and 12 that says that you know most people that can't get anything out of prayer haven't tried it enough. And that's who I was. I hadn't tried it enough. So I'm trying it more now, and it's working. I, I don't pray for a lot. I pray God's will be done. You know, I pray for the knowledge of His will and the power to carry it out. You know, the big, the, the 11th step says uh, we we seek conscious contact with God as we understand Him. And I think I had crisis contact with God instead of conscious contact. It was like, oh crap, here, you know, something bad would happen, and I'd be like, God, well, you know, what's the deal? And I would have crisis contact with God, not conscious contact with God. And I had a lot of anger towards God when bad things happened. I had this deal. Part of my mis- my mistaken ideas of God was I had this deal with God that when anything bad happened, I would kind of blame him. Well, God, you let that bad thing happen, therefore, I'm really not on the hook for whatever you're telling me I should be doing, and I would use uh, you know negative experiences to to blame God and then use that to justify my behavior. It was really sick. But I would blame God for for things and uh, hold Him responsible. So I liked it when God messed up. And I would use it as an excuse to act out. My wife got real sick and I got real mad at God over that one. And my son was born with a birth defect and I held that one against God for a whole long, long, long time. You know, I, I, I keep a record on the God guy. He, he ain't as good as everybody says. And I had to learn that, that in my opinion, God hates injustice as much as, as anybody. And that uh, he can even turn all that stuff around. Uh, I've learned that. I, like Scott said, he takes the worst thing that can happen and turns it into something beautiful. And that's just an amazing statement. Um, one of the other things that happened in the 11th step is this last little piece where it says, if circumstances warrant, we ask our wives or husbands or friends to join us in morning, morning meditation. And that has been my experience in my marriage, that, that Vicki and I pray together when circumstances warrant it's not like we had this okay every morning we're going to get up and we're going to do this thing but we do pray together when circumstances seem to call for it you know a lot of times when we're getting ready to take a trip and spend significant time together in the car (laughs) we pray (laughs) we're thinking we need all the help we can get on that one it's like and when circumstances warrant, we pray. She got up and prayed for me this morning. She just saw that circumstances warranted, and that's a beautiful thing, I believe. And but part of my recovery is to look for those oppor- circumstances when they warrant. We pray together. We 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 have conversations about our recovery. There's a line in the in the in the. Uh, ninth step reading it says we frankly analyze the past we sit down and frankly analyze the past it's on page 83 we ought to sit down with the family and frankly analyze the the past as we see it being careful not to criticize them I asked my sponsor what did that mean he said well you don't give them your fifth step you know but We have had opportunities to sit down together and talk about things that didn't go right in our marriage. I think sometimes people do that with therapists in the room. They sit down and talk about things in the past with a a referee in the room. That's okay. We don't use the past to beat each other up. Very rarely. That'll happen. It'll come up, but we don't use it to beat each other up. But we do sit down sometimes and talk about what, how we feel about things. And the past might be yesterday. The past might be, you know, years ago. But, you know, we do kind of have some conversations, and I'm grateful for that. She is a recovering member of another of the Essanon Fellowship, and for that I'm, I'm extremely grateful. I know everyone doesn't get that experience. Um, it can be challenging. But uh, it's it's been a wonderful thing. Um, Working with others, chapter twelve, the twelfth step. I mean, chapter seven, the twelfth step. um, Just a couple of things, and practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive (laughs) intensive work with other alcoholics. And Scott told me that was. Uh, new people and old-timers. So it's important to sit down and do intensive work with each other. You know, he said, call Harvey. You know, give Harvey a call. He needs to hear from you. So I called Harvey. I had nothing to say, but we ta- I called him. You know, and it, it, sometimes intense work with, with the old-timers is what's called for. You know, they need us. Priscilla needs us. You know, uh, these, these folks that have been Dave, they need us, and we need to remember that. So that intense work with others. Um, carrying the message is, again, I think crucial. I, I just don't know how I could recover without that. I love to spend time with newcomers. You know, part of what we're doing in Nashville is uh, trying to make it easier for the new person to become a part of the fellowship, I think. We have the Saturday morning uh, breakout meeting for people with 90 days of sobriety or less. Uh, The other couple of weeks ago, last time I was there, there was 40 people in that room or so. It was huge. we're doing the same thing on Friday mornings at the 6.30 group. We're, we're meeting, we call it getting started. And we just have a breakout for people who, who just need a little bit of more opportunity to, to get to be a part of, to get to be a member, to, to involve themselves a little bit more. And, and for me, that's a real honor. And it's a, it's crucial for me to look into the eyes of a new per, new person, and and be reminded of what this disease does. You know, the book talks about us suffering from delusions, and I I don't see anywhere where it says that the capacity to suffer from delusional thinking disappears. You know, I'm I I think. You know, we we talk about old timers going out and relapsing, and what I see is they suffer from the delusion they're not they are not like other people, or they are like other people. They—they don't realize they're still sexaholics. You know, they so I come in the rooms, and I'm like, I'm not like y'all. You know, this person did this, this person did that. That guy's got cattle prods. You know, just, uh, I'm not like y'all. You know, and, and I'm comparing myself right out of the room. That's what the newcomer does. And then I get a little time in the program, and I'm sitting here, and the newcomer's sharing his stuff, and I'm going, well, I thank God I'm not like that. What is that but a delusion? I'm not like the newcomer. I am the newcomer. If I think I'm anything but, I'm, I got a problem. My thinking is out of whack. So intense work with other alcoholics ensures that I don't go back into that delusional trap, thinking I can control and enjoy it. I used to think that. I used to. I came in the rooms. Um, with the idea that my sexaholism was like a monster in a box, and that the problem was I just couldn't keep that monster in the box. It just I was powerless over it. And it kept just bringing itself right out of that box without my permission. So my attitude, my thought, my mind, my mindset was, well, I'll just get in SA and I'll build a better box. You know, I'll build a bigger, stronger, better box. Keep that monster inside. And that's basically the the delusion that I can be I can wrest satisfaction out of life if I manage well. I can just manage that monster. You know, that's that's what I thought. And my opinion is today the better idea is just get away. <laughs> you know, let that guy go. Just Stop fighting that monster. Whatever that guy does, really not a whole lot of any of my business. My focus better be on practicing these principles, carrying this message. I believe that when the White Book says we are outside the context of right and wrong, that's a permanent state. Again, another example. If this room is right and wrong, I was somewhere in Oklahoma. You know, I was way out of the context of right and wrong. And I thought recovery meant getting back in the room. I'm, like, I'm living by right and wrong now. I know the context of right and wrong. I don't think that's how my brain works. I just, I don't know the context of right. Again, you know, I'll steal the big book, you know. my My context of right and wrong is just whacked. And what I'm learning here is to have that vital spiritual experience, that daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition, working this program, pursuing the light, pursuing a new way of life, getting unthirsty, and just being okay with the way things are. That's what I'm after. I used to think God was holding out on me. I'll tell this story and then and, and just call it a day. We're gonna go across the okay. when you're done. at 415. Okay, yeah. Beautiful. Just very brief close. Um, my old idea was God is holding out on me. More is never enough. I gotta get mine. Where's mine? It's not enough. It's not the right kind. It's not the right color. Always grabbing. Always taking. Always demanding. But what I'm learning in this fellowship and what y'all are teaching me is we live in a world of absolute abundance. There's enough for everybody. There's a story about a guy who, he was a speaker. They had a speaker meeting out on the side of a hill he had 12 sponsees, and everybody came to hear this guy speak, but nobody brought any food. Well, he did his story, and his sponsees, that's me just giving them a program-approved name, they said, man, we got to send these people home. We're going to have a some hungry people. We're going to have a food riot. We're going to have the Hunger Games. And the, the, the guy says well, what do we got? What do you got? And it was, what, two fish, five loaves, bread and some fish. And this guy, I don't know how he did it, I don't know how he did it, but the story goes, everybody on the hillside had all the food they wanted. And they had just enough left over for every one of his sponsees to take a basket and take home, or whatever he did with them. But what that story tells me, and I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to be religious, but what that story tells me is we live in a world of absolute abundance. It's all right, right here, right now, just the way it is. And if I can just get that through this sexaholic brain and practice that on a regular basis, I can be okay. I can recover. And I can tell other people about that And they get better, too. And that's just some of my experience. We'll end it there. Thanks. Thank you, Brian.